I love being the pastor of a church with a big heart. <clears throat> you all have a heart for God and a heart for one another. Well, speaking of a heart, we're going to look at the personal God tonight. Genesis chapter 1 was about the creator God, <clears throat> but I want us to see tonight in chapter 2 the personal God, the personal God. I want to begin, though, in the first three verses, which really goes along with chapter 1 more than chapter 2. But since we really didn't touch on these last week, I want to get to these tonight. The heavens and the earth were completed or finished with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. Notice there, first of all, that the Bible tells us that God completed or finished everything that he had done in six days. Even in verse 2, it says he had finished or brought to an end or completed the work that he started. I couldn't help but think that God finishes what he starts. He never leaves anything unfinished or incomplete. That was true in the creation of the universe. And that is also true in our lives. And so that's how I want us to apply that principle. God isn't finished with this universe yet. God has a plan, and he will finish it. <clears throat> God has a plan for this world, and he will finish that plan. God has a plan for your life and my life, and he will finish it. In fact, Paul said to the Philippians, I am confident and I'm sure of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it. He won't stop that work until the day we see Jesus Christ. So God finished the work. As I said before our time of worship, though, twice in these three verses, it talks about God ceasing. Verse 2, he ceased on the seventh day, and then in verse 3, he ceased all the work that he had been doing. He paused in order to celebrate. I couldn't even help but think of that verse in Nehemiah, <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 10, where Nehemiah says to the people of God, the joy of the Lord is our strength. These were people who had come back from Babylonian exile. They had suffered because of their rebellion and disobedience against the Lord for centuries, for a long time. They had turned their backs on God. And now this generation came back to Israel and began to rebuild their lives. And they began to rebuild their lives around God and the worship of God and his word. And the Bible says in the book of Nehemiah that Ezra, the priest, and Nehemiah worked together as partners. And Ezra opened the word of God and began to read it. And the Bible says the people began weeping. 
as they heard Ezra recount the goodness of God, how good God had been to them, how he delivered them out of Egypt, how he brought them into the land, and all that God had done for them, and they felt just so moved, and yet just filled with, you know, regret and maybe guilt and shame. And Nehemiah says, there may be a time for that, but now's not the time. There were 50,000 Israelites there that day. And Nehemiah says, don't weep. You go home and you have a big dinner. You get out your best wine and you celebrate this day. Because this is a day that reminds us that no matter who we've been, God loves us. And God is a God of restoration and renewal. And God will bring us back. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. We must remember that as well. God is the God of every day. Yes, notice in verse 3, he did consecrate and bless the seventh day. He set it apart as a special day. He modeled this. First of all, our God could have created the whole universe in a split second if he wanted to. He took six days because, again, he was creating a calendar, if you will, for us. He was creating a rhythm of life for us. Seven days in a week, you know, 52 weeks in a year. The sun and the moon would help us to go through the seasons. He, he created all that so that we would have a rhythm to live by. But he did consecrate the seventh day and set it apart from the others and said, you all need to pause one time a week and make sure that you give thanks and celebrate and that you stop what you're doing. And I believe that's why he set up the Sabbath day. But then notice in verse 4, it says, this is the account or literally the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I even said last week, we had to get that from God because nobody was there but him. If he wouldn't have revealed how he made all this, we would never know any of it. And so that's what, again, reminds us that history is really his, God's story. He's the one that's writing the story. Now, beginning in verse 4, there's a significant change that takes place with how God is addressed. Up until this point, chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, Elohim is the only name used. God. In the beginning, God, right? And Elohim speaks about the power of God and the might of God and the strength of God. And obviously, when you're talking about this vast universe that God created and all that he created from the smallest microscopic, you know, elements to the largest animals and largest planets and stars and all of that, obviously it magnifies the strength and power and might of God. But now when you come to chapter 2, verse 4, notice how he's addressed. And I'm not going to go through every last time this reference is used, but I want you to see the significance here of how it changes from God, Elohim, to now Jehovah, Elohim. Notice the phrase, Lord God. Verse 4, then verse 7, the Lord God formed the man. 
Verse 8, the Lord God planted an orchard. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man. Verse 18, the Lord God said. And finally, verse 22 tonight, the Lord God made the woman. Jehovah Elohim. Why? Because it's a beautiful picture of our God. It, it, it pro provides a balance of God. Yes, he is God the creator, the strong, mighty, powerful one. Almighty. No one greater power and strength than God to be able to bring this all about with just speaking it into existence out of nothing. But he's also Jehovah, Yahweh, the personal God, the God of relations, the God of intimacy, the God of connection, the God who wants to have a relationship with those that he created, especially the crown jewel of his creation, humankind, as it says here in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God. You see, the name Lord, Jehovah Yahweh, was the national name for God for Israel. It is the covenant name of God for Israel. It, it signifies God wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't just want to create the world and sort of let it be, as the deists believe, just sort of wind up the universe and let it go and then back off and then have nothing to do with it, no engagement. No, God is very intimately connected to his creation. In fact, we're going to see throughout our study of these first few chapters of Genesis, again, the attention to detail and the, the great love and care and attention God gives to everything that he created, even things we don't care about, God cares about. From the smallest bug that God made to, again, maybe the greatest, largest creations that God has made in the oceans and in, on land. He's the Lord God. So notice then in verse 5, at this point, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. So there, there were greens, if you will, but nothing yet to water it. So notice again, God in the details. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. We can read past that, but it's like, it's how amazing God is that he's in the details of even before it starts to rain and he puts rain into the hydrological cycle, if you will, that he makes sure that the plants and stuff that he does have there, that it has water in order to grow. God takes care of what he has created. Even the inanimate objects, how much more does he pay attention and care and love on us? And that's what makes chapter 2 of Genesis significant. God created this massive universe that you and I don't even know how big it is, even with all of our modern technology. And yet when it came to what God wanted to zero in on, when you come to chapter 2, you know what he pays attention to? Us in a sense, the creation of man. It's like he wants to tell us more detail about us and our beginning and how we as human beings began. 
He doesn't want to talk to us about all those galaxies that he made and all the great planets and stars and all that. No, he wants to draw, because there was a lot that happened in those six days. But God says, but it's more significant for me that I talk to you about you. Because again, I'm a personal God. And even though I created all this wondrous stuff, it's all for you, and it's all for me to be able to relate to you. That's what I want you to see in this, God is saying. So notice, it says in verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground. He shaped, he fashioned as a potter would, Adam. From a design, by the way. That's what the word formed means. Again, God was not just the, the constructor or the builder. He was the architect. He was a designer. He designed and still designs every last human being that he brings into this world. Every, down to every last detail about how we look. God designed that. He, he had a plan that he went by when he created us in our mother's womb. And he also did it with a purpose. He formed us with a purpose in mind. That's amazing. Again, that shows the care and the attention and the detail God gave to every last human being that God has ever brought into this world. But notice, what did God make Adam from? Dust. <laughs> Dust. Human beings are 70% water and 30% what you find on the ground. That's what we're made out of. Even in that, God is saying, I think, to us, we shouldn't be as concerned about our external as we are the internal, you see. And yet, human beings, many times, we pay more attention to the external part than we do the internal, the heart. Because God, later on in chapter 3, verse 19, after sin enters, he says, yeah, you're going to return to dust, too. You're going to go back to dust. Because it's really not about your physical body your physical body is just the container for what's the real treasure. And that's your soul. That's your soul. By the way, there's a play on words here. The first man, Adam, okay, in the Hebrew. The word for ground in the Hebrew is Adama. So Adam came from the Adama, if you will. And then notice this, and we sung about this tonight. Then it says, and God then breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. Adam was not alive until God literally breathed into him. And then the Bible says, and the man then became a living being. Again, a reminder, every breath is a gift from God. And we would not have physical life, and we would not have spiritual life apart from God. God is the giver of life. He breathes physical life so that we can exist, and he will breathe spiritual life into us so that we exist. This same word in the Hebrew is used in that very famous passage in the book of Ezekiel. You know the story, the valley of the dry bones. And God says to the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy. Prophesy to that breath, that supernatural breath of mine to go in 
and fill the, those sinews and those muscles and those bones that have all been dried up so that it will give them life and they will come alive. You see, God can bring things to life. God can bring us to life. God can energize us. God can give us spiritual life and he can give us physical life because he is the giver of life. No, there is no life apart from God. God has to breathe it into us. And I thank God that when I come here to the Oasis, I feel the breath of God in this place. And don't miss this. Adam became a living being. It literally means a soul, listen, with a desire. That's why we teach that when God created men and women, there was this as we say, this vacuum that only God could fulfill and satisfy. He created us with a soul of desire. And the only thing that will fulfill and satisfy that desire that God created us with is a relationship with our Creator, the Lord God, the one who wants to have a relationship with us, but leaves that choice up to us, as we're going to see in just a moment. Now notice again how God takes care and, and has great oversight over what he creates. Because in verse 8, it says, The Lord God then established or planted a garden, an orchard in the east, in Eden. And there he literally set in place the man he had formed. He created the environment now, perfect, beautiful environment for Adam to exist in. God took care of all the details, not just in the creation of the man himself, but where he would live and where he would exist and where he would find his purpose in life. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow from the soil, to sprout, to spring up. Every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. By the way, the word pleasing and good both mean beautiful. Beautiful food and beautiful environment. This garden was a beautiful place. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. A river flows from Eden to water the orchard. By the way, notice that the garden is not Eden. The garden was in the region of Eden. And the word Eden means delight and pleasure. And the location of this region called Eden, where the garden was that he placed Adam, is described there. And so if you go down to the end of verse 14, I just wrote in my Bible, today this area is called the Fertile Crescent. If you study the geography of where this place is, it is literally in the Middle East where it's today called the Fertile Crescent. Now, obviously, it looked a lot different thousands of years ago than it does today. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden. The word place is a significant word. It means to deposit him. It speaks about an investment that God was making, and we talked about that last week. God chose to create. He didn't have to create anything. He could have existed all eternity. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just the three of them in perfection. Fine, they would have been great. But when God chose to create this universe, and especially mankind in it, he knew that he was then going to be invested in his creation for the rest of eternity. 
And God even started out that way. I'm depositing you, Adam, into this garden. And by doing so, I'm making an investment as God into you. As God does into each of us, he makes an investment. The ultimate investment God made was when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die for each of us. The ultimate investment God made. And notice, he took the man, placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and maintain it. Work! Please see that. Work has always been part of the purpose of God for man. Work was not the consequence of sin. Work becoming more difficult and more challenging and harder was a consequence of sin. But God always planned for man to have a purpose and to be able to work. He said, Adam, here's your stewardship. Here's your work. Here's how you're going to serve me. You're going to manage and maintain this beautiful garden that I have placed you in. That's why even when we get into the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity, we're going to have work to do. We're going to be serving the Lord. We're going to be ruling and reigning over his millennial kingdom and over the new heavens and the new earth. We're always going to have work to do. We're always going to have purpose. God always meant for that to be part of who we are with him, you see. Then the Lord God commanded the man. He gave him very clear instructions. You may freely eat from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. Not suffer death immediately, but that the process of dying would begin if they ate from that. Now think about this. It seems to me that that garden was a pretty big place. And God is basically saying to Adam, I'm, I'm only going to give you one thing, just, just one thing not to do, right? You can, you can partake of all this other stuff. It's not like it was reversed, like God said, there's only one tree you can eat from and the rest you got to stay with. No, just the opposite. You can do Everything you want to do with all this other stuff, just don't eat from that one tree. Now, why did God even create that? Why did God place that there in the middle of the garden? Because again, God always had a plan that man that he created would have a choice of whether to follow him and obey him or not. And especially here in this context, whether man would choose to only receive the knowledge that they gain from God, or whether man would seek to gain knowledge apart from God. By the way, as we saw here, and as we've seen throughout the history of our world, a knowledge that when we gained it, we couldn't handle it, and we still can't handle it. We do not have, after sin, the moral capability to be able to handle the knowledge that we have to do what we do. That's why we destroy each other. That's why we destroy ourselves. Because we have been given a knowledge, apart from where God would have led us, that you and I, as sinners, can't handle. That's why God said, don't do that. You need to be satisfied, Adam, just to receive the knowledge that I give you. 
to trust me to get all that you'll need. But like Satan, even, he chose to be independent of God and Adam, his wife, too, and said, nope, we're not satisfied just to get from you. We're going to go and then run, and we're going to gain knowledge apart from you, God. And that's where death came about. An attainment of knowledge independent of God. So the Lord God said, it is not good, verse 18, for the man to be alone. This is not the best situation, God is saying, for you to be by yourself, which we know the Bible talks about a lot, not just with marriage and men and women, but just in general. Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, two are always better than one. It's always good to have friends and partners and, and people to do you know, life and ministry with and all that. It's always better to have someone else rather than trying to do it on your own. So again, God's in the details. God is taking loving care and attention to those that he created, especially mankind. He took care of putting him in this garden and making this beautiful garden, giving him a purpose. You're going to manage it. You're going to maintain it. That's, that's what you can do. You can have access to all this that I've created for you, all these beautiful things, just that one, because I've got to give you a choice. I'm not going to make you robots. I'm never, it was never God's intent to make us robots and force us to follow him. He said, I'm going to make you a free moral agent. I'm going to at least put a tree there so that you have a choice. And God still gives us a choice of whether we want to follow him or not. So he says, I'm going to make a companion for him. By the way, the word companion means one who is a help. I mean, again, that's what... Spouses and partnerships and friendships and all of that. We help each other, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. One who corresponds to him. You gals are going to like what that means. It means more than adequate. You winners think, yep, that's us. We are more than adequate. And you're right, you are. More than adequate. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. And notice this. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. Remember, God named the universe, the stars, all of that, clouds, planets. All that. But he gave the responsibility to name all the animal kingdom to Adam. So today, why do we call that a zebra and that a skunk and that a monkey, because that was the names Adam gave to the animal. Adam was a pretty intelligent person. Over the years, though, sin continues to deteriorate man's mind. I think sometimes we, in our modern you know, settings, we, we think we're smarter than the ancients are. I personally think just the opposite. I think because of their lack of distance yet from the original design that people back then 
we're a lot smarter than what we think we are today. Could accomplish a lot more with less than what we can today. And then it says in verse 20, the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, the living creatures of the field, but for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. So notice, God is the one who performed the first surgery in the Bible. He caused Adam to go into a deep sleep. He anesthetized him. Took a part of his side, closed up the place with flesh, and the Lord God, notice, made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man. Something very interesting. God formed Adam out of the dust. But he literally, and this is what the word made means in the Hebrew, he built a woman out of what he had taken out of man. Formed a man, built a woman from the part he had taken out of the man. And notice, here again, God in the details, God giving loving attention to Adam. He doesn't expect Adam to go to the woman. No, after he does this, notice it is God who brings her to the man. This is, again, an example that God provides who and what we truly need. All we have to do is trust him and look to him. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. When you read the account of Genesis 2, and especially God zeroing in on making man and, and woman and all of that, God is the provider of his creation. He provided water for the plants to grow. He provides the food for the bugs and, and the birds and, and the bees and, and all the living creatures that he made to be able to survive. And then God put Adam and Eve into this beautiful garden and gave them all the food they would ever need and such a glorious place to live and exist in and have a purpose in. And then he made Adam a companion. He did all that. All man had to do was trust God to provide. And God is showing, I'll be faithful, I'll provide. And so what we can learn from Genesis chapter 2 is just to trust our Lord that he will provide for us all of our need. No one loves us and cares for us and pays more attention to us and is in the details of what we truly need than our God is. And he's no different now than he was back at the beginning of creation. He's the same God. Then the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, the counterpart to man. For she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. Notice marriage was not man's idea. Man, marriage was God's design from the very beginning. And notice also that this new relationship would take precedence over the parent-child relationship. We'll get into that later when he talks about leaving and cleaving. And then finally, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. There was no sense of shame. Because shame only comes when sin enters. And when sin enters, it affects our self-identity. I want us to remember that as we go into next week's passage, Genesis chapter 3. 
Sin affects our self-identity. That's why so many people today struggle and have throughout history with their identity. Who am I? Because sin affects our identity. The only way that can be restored is through a relationship with the one who created us. Then we find our identity in our creator and in our savior, and we find the purpose for why he created us in that relationship as well. Remember, in Genesis 1, he is the creator God. He is referred to only as God, Elohim. But when we come to chapter 2, a significant change takes place. He now is addressed as the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim. He's not just the Almighty. He's not just the God who is strong and mighty and powerful. He is the God of a relationship. He's the God of intimacy. He's the God who wants to be personal and have a connection with those that he created. That's why he breathed into Adam that breath of his life and made him a living soul, a soul of desire that could only be fulfilled and satisfied in that relationship with God. That's why we need to be all about our relationship with him and with each other. That's where it all comes down to. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And when you and I you know, live our life in relationship and pursue a relationship with God, there is nothing more fulfilling or satisfying that we could ever be a part of because that goes right back to the very foundation of why God made us because that's what he made us for. And we will find everything that we need in our relationship with God. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that, Lord, you've given us breath not only to be alive, but to worship you, to sing your praises, to exalt you. God, we've had a wonderful time in your house tonight because, Lord, you're here and you're in those homes of those who are watching tonight as well. You're always with us, God. You're our constant companion. And, God, you want to just draw nearer and nearer to us. But, Lord, it's our choice. You want us to choose you. You want us to choose to love you and to pursue you. And so, God, I just pray that tonight, through our time of worship, through our time in, in, in your word, God, that we have been inspired and encouraged to continue to love you and pursue you all the days of our life, God. Because as we even were reminded yesterday, Lord, when we looked into Psalm 23, the psalmist writes, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. God, you chase after us. You run after us all our days. God, may we have that heart for you that you have for us. Would you take us all home tonight? And if we're already home, give us all a good night of rest. And Lord, if you give us another day to be alive and to find our purpose in you tomorrow, Lord, make it a great day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you next week.